Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we bow ourselves before you. We look for your grace and mercy to be with us. We look for your blessing to be near us. We pray that you would edify us in your truth. Let us have the Spirit of God that we need in both preaching and hearing. Let us have his power. Let us have his assistance. Let us have his grace so that in the preaching and hearing, you would attend it with power, that the truth might be set forth, that we might hear it, that we might understand it, that we might follow after you, and that we might walk on your paths according to your grace and your mercy for both the preaching and the hearing. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Turn with me to the book of John. We're going to read the first 26 verses, a section of Scripture which is very familiar to most. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water, springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have said well, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you, and he. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. I'm going to take this whole section and break it down verse by verse, or verses by verses as we go through it, so that we're sure we don't miss the ideas that are being set forth in the passage, and there are two in particular that I'm going to deal with. First, let's look at verse 1 and 2. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples will stop there. Now, 
from the viewpoint of the Pharisees, things were getting worse here, not better. First John the Baptist came along, and he baptized all sorts of disciples. And they even wondered if he was uh, Elijah come back to life. And here, Jesus' disciples were baptizing more. And the Pharisees were getting nervous because things were getting worse for them. Their kingdom, so to speak, was being taken away from them because converts were being made. And Jesus was baptizing more than John had. Although, as, as Matthew comments in there, Jesus himself didn't baptize, but his disciples did. And then the text continues. And he left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being weary from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now, the calamity that could have befallen him before his appointed time was of concern. The Pharisees would have arrested him, put him to death, and done everything that they were going to do later, so he left. He went back again to Galilee, where he previously performed the change of the water into wine. The text says that he had to go, finding the shortest route to his destination, and there he passed through Samaria. There we find him moving through a town called Sychar, where Jacob had given his son Joseph the plot of land, and where Joseph was ultimately buried. And you can look that up in Genesis 48:22, In Genesis chapter 50, verses 25 and 26, it explains all of that. This is where we find Jacob's spring. Jacob, in his day, wanted his own well. He didn't want to have any problems watering his flocks, and he didn't want to have any problems with surrounding neighbors. You can find that out in Genesis 26:15. so he dug his own well. And Jesus here was tired and thirsty, and it was about the time, the sixth hour, the text tells us, when people would come to the well and draw water. John chapter 4, verses 7 through 10 says, A woman of Samaria came to draw water. This is the sixth hour. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? Now this is very important. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it, was, who it says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, the Lord sees the opportunity not only to win over this Samaritan woman, but also her neighbors. As we read later in the passage, she runs off, goes talks to her neighbors, and brings them all to speak with Jesus. But Jesus first uses her compassion and asks her for a drink. She responds by bringing up animosity between Jews and Samaritans. She just doesn't give him a drink. Now, it's very important that we understand what the deal is in going on between Jews and Samaritans here and why even the Spirit decided that in the text it would say, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Because being a Samaritan versus being a Jew is very important to this passage and very important to what we're going to talk about later. Israel's last king, Hosea, after yielding to Assyria, transferred allegiance to Egypt. And Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom, and it was surrounded by Shalmaneser, and was finally taken by Sargon in 722 B.C. You can read that in 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 3 to 6. Most of the people were driven out, and they were carried away to Assyria. But the very poor were allowed to stay there. Foreigners from Babylon were brought into this region, and they intermarried with the Israelites. That was a big problem. So the population became mixed. And this mixed population were called Samaritans. They were called that after the city of Samaria, which was the capital. The Israelites there asked for uh, an Israelite priest. They asked the king for this. 
They asked an Israelite priest that he would be brought in so that, they that he could teach them God's law because they didn't have anybody. And they wanted the priest to be brought back. They wanted the law taught to them. They knew everything that had gone on. They had displeased God. They were in sin. They needed somebody that understood God's law to come back and help them. But this became a religious mess of sorts because paganism from the Babylonians and Judaism from the Israelites mixed together. So you had a wacky sort of religion, which we talked about the last time, the very first sermon we did in this series, and we called that religious syncretism, and that's what happened with them. When the Jews ultimately returned to Jerusalem in 586 B.C., the Samaritans wanted to come back as well. And they wanted to help rebuild the temple and the wall and everything. Right? Ezra, Nehemiah, all of that. And the Samaritans wanted to come back, but the Jews refused. They wouldn't let them. You guys are way out there. You guys don't believe the same things we do. They had a a mishmash of all sorts of different things. Thus, the, the Samaritans hated the Jews and decided to build their own temple on Mount Gerizim. And that's what they did. So, notice, religion for the Samaritans, for those Jews, changed with the shift of cultural influence that came upon them. Samaritans, the text says, have no dealings with Jews. Even to the extent that they decided to build another temple in and of themselves to do that. And Jews were not allowed, according to the laws of purity in Leviticus 15, to even drink with these people. That's why they considered them dogs. But Jesus asks her for a drink. She doesn't give him one. She asks, hey, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan, we shouldn't even be talking. Instead, Jesus inflames her curiosity with a riddle of sorts and tells her that she should ask him for living water. Now, as Nicodemus, the Jew, in John chapter 3, didn't understand what being born again was, right, kind of a riddle, so Jesus, with this Samaritan woman, now gives her a riddle about living water. And Jesus rebukes her with a sort of rebuke, where he says, if you knew, who this was that was talking to you, right? But she says she didn't know. So it was a rebuke. She didn't know who Jesus was until a little bit later. She did not immediately give him water when he asked, but if she would have asked him for living water, he would have given it immediately, which is exactly what he says. He would have given it to you. If you had known, if you had asked, he would have given it. So then we go into the next part of the verses here in John 4, 11 to 15. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. So she asks him if he's greater than Jacob. And he responds by telling her he is. By an explanation of living water. People come to Jacob's well and they continually thirst. Those that come to Jesus to drink living water will never thirst. And then the Samaritan woman wants the water. Give me this, because I don't want to have to keep coming back to this well and drink. Jesus asks her for a drink. Now she's asking him for living water. Now she asked, right? Does he give it to her? He doesn't give it to her. Let's read. John four sixteen to 22. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have said, well, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband, and that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I believe that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. 
Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you don't know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. Now, Jesus just said that he was going to give her a living water, but he doesn't. What's the deal with that? She wants water, but Jesus asks her about her ethics. It's right where he goes. Why does he do that? I thought that he said he would give it to her immediately, but he doesn't. Well, it's the idea behind what Jesus is doing here. You cannot have living water without a sense of your guilt. So he's got a prepper, basically, to give it to her. Living water or salvation will not matter to those who are not sensible of their guilt before God. So Jesus attacks her ethics. She doesn't have a husband. She was uh, very talkative before, actually. In the Greek text, in the previous verses, she uses a lot of words to answer the questions. And when Jesus asked her about the husband, she uses three words. Slip real quick. She didn't want to talk about that. The woman is living with a man. She's had five other husbands. Now, possibly could be that some of her husbands died and she remarried. But five times? Very unlikely that it was five times. It's just that her life is an ethical and moral mess. And Jesus tells her everything about it. You're right. You haven't. The one you're living with now isn't. She then perceives that Jesus is a prophet because he's telling her things that only the omniscient God could know. It didn't even seem to be common knowledge. If it was common knowledge in the town or in the surrounding area that she's having all these men, it wouldn't necessarily be a big deal. But she's keeping things a secret. She answers very quickly. She wants to keep that under wraps. Later on, she's going to go back to the town and tell everyone that Jesus told her her whole life. But he else probably doesn't know that. Then she makes a shift. Because she says he's a prophet. Oh, I know what's coming next. You're going to tell me that I've got to go worship over in Jerusalem. Right? And that's a problem for Samaritans. So she starts talking about worship because the coming Messiah is going to teach everyone how to worship correctly. Take a note. She doesn't deny her guilt. She doesn't deny that she's done these things with these men. But she says, listen, if you're, I know where this is going, in other words. Jesus is going to start telling me that I've got to go over to Jerusalem and start worshiping over there. We worship over here. We don't have any dealings with Jews. This is going to be a major problem. Where should people worship? You're a prophet, a Jewish prophet. And she probably picked that up as a result of Jesus' accent. You're going to tell me to amend my life. You're going to tell me to amend my ways. And that takes going to the temple. Now, where am I supposed to go? That means I have to have a place of worship. Is it here at Mount Gerizim? Or do I have to go to Jerusalem? Jesus says that exclusivity of worship is coming to an end. Worship's not going to be tied to a locale after he finishes his work. It's not going to be tied to one mountain or another mountain. So Jesus tells her, he instructs her, that you worship what you don't know. What he's doing is he's setting up how worship will forever be and always has been. See, the Samaritans rejected the prophetical books and the poetical books of the Old Testament. They only used the law. But the Jews accept all the books of the Old Testament, and that informs them as to who God is. They worship what they know. The Samaritans didn't because they only had a portion of the scriptures. They only had some of the stories, a small portion of that. Thus, he says, salvation is from the Jews, not from partial truth, from all of the truth, from the scriptures. And then we have the climactic verses, 23 to 26. But the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now, he says the hour is coming, 
It's now and not yet. He says it now is, but it's also coming. The ceremonial law will soon be utterly done away with, and the temple veil is going to be torn, and true worshipers will not worship by location or by the physical alone. They don't have to go to a certain place. They're going to worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The verb will worship literally means to respect. They're going to respect God. True worshipers respect God. And the context determines how we should translate spirit and truth. Some people like to put a big S on spirit. But that doesn't fit the context of neither what happened in the Old Testament or what's going on here. Jesus is demonstrating two key points. Physical considerations will no longer be considered. We won't have to worry about a temple here or there or anywhere. But second, true worship has to be done in truth. The Messiah dictates that truth. And it's by special revelation, not by rejecting any of the scriptures as the Samaritans had. So it has to be done by truth, and it doesn't matter where it's done in terms of the gathering of God's people. They don't have to be at a certain mountain. Spirit and truth. The Father's to be worshipped in spirit and truth. And is seeking, the Father is seeking, true worshippers in that manner. Spirit and truth. The necessity of spiritual worship, according to Jesus, is because God is a spirit. Right? Not only will they worship God, but they can't worship God in any other way than spirit and truth. All the ceremonial stuff that would have simply been outward is going to be tossed away, and people are going to simply worship God in what we will call the entirety of man's redeemed humanity. It's not only to be done in the spirit, but by spirit and truth, by the entirety of a man's redeemed humanity. He's an emotional being. He's an intellectual and rational being. He's a spiritual being. He's a physical being. At whatever place he worships, he must worship in the entirety of his redeemed humanity and by the truth of special revelation. Heart worship informed by God's word. That's Jesus' point. The Messiah is coming, she says, and when he comes, he'll explain everything. Jesus says to her, not to the Pharisees who would have certainly condemned him, but he says to her, a Samaritan, that he is the Messiah. By his death, the sacrifice for his elect people, Christ is reforming worship here. He's changing worship that is tied to ritual and replacing it with worship in the fullness of being and solely by the truth of God. Not outward object lessons, but by the truth. In the Old Testament, when dealing with all of the ceremonial stuff that they have to do, there were all word pictures or outward pictures to them. It was either you or the animal being slain. It's not going to be that way anymore. Certainly, as we'll see, God desired the heart to be engaged in it, but Jesus is making a point to the Samaritan. You can't worship God by partial revelation. You can't worship God with some of the truth. You have to worship God in the truth, by spirit, with the entirety of your being, and by the truth. There's no other way to do it. You Samaritans fall short. That's why salvation is from the Jews. And so Jesus tells her that he is the Messiah who's going to bring these changes to pass. Now, there's a lot of things in this passage, and many sermons that have been done on this passage usually surround just spirit and truth. We're only going to touch on that as two specific things I want to pull from the text. The first deals with spirit and truth. Here's the first thing I want you to understand. God must be worshipped with the entirety of our redeemed humanity and only by the truth of his word. The text is blatantly teaching that. The entirety of our redeemed humanity. Whether one looks in the Old Testament or the New Testament, we find God looking to men to worship with a right heart. He wants us to worship with a right heart. Psalm 51.16 For you do not desire sacrifice 
or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offerings. Right? David's saying. Or in 1 Samuel 15.22, then Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. It's better to have a right heart than to just throw a lamb on the altar and have the priest slay it on your behalf. In the Old Testament, they worshipped in spirit. But they worshipped with all of this stuff, all of these things that were outward and that were cumbersome, but Jesus doesn't simply say spirit to enforce the idea that men must worship God with their whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. Rather, he's saying that they have been doing that. They're now doing it. It's now. And it shall be that way. It's now, but it will be more so revealed in the death of Christ. When Jesus says the hour is coming, he's referring to the tearing of the veil and the displacement of the temples, whether in Samaria, Samaria or Jerusalem, either way. Those are going to be immaterial. And when I die, you're going to be worshiping in the entirety of your redeemed humanity wherever you go and worship. Whether it's on this mountain, that mountain, or another mountain, doesn't make any difference. Being tied to a specific locality isn't the point. Though Christ, and through Christ, the entirety of the Christian's redeemed being will worship God, not by attaching yourself to a physical place, but solely by his offering and the Christian's connection to him. He is the one who gives rivers of living water to those the Father is seeking to worship, but they're supposed to worship in spirit and truth. They never thirst, and they're completely satisfied in him. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, i.e. in spirit. Jesus also pointed out that it's by special revelation that Christians worship the Father. That's how they worship. Jesus rejected the Samaritan concept of worshiping in ignorance without the word. Can't do that. It's utterly impossible to worship God rightly in ignorance. Christ told the Samaritan woman that she worshipped a God she didn't even know because she and all Samaritans rejected much of the scriptures, the Old Testament. This is important because, number one, men can't invent their own ways or ideas into the worship of the church. And number two, ignorance of what to do is as bad as not doing what we ought to do. And they were supposed to follow what the scripture said. They couldn't. They didn't even have it. They didn't believe but a change in culture had grievously affected these Samaritans because Babylonian paganism had infiltrated their worship. It was done through intermarriage. Same problem Solomon had. As a result, the Samaritans had been paying for that sin. They were worshipping, but they were worshipping incorrectly and they were worshipping ignorantly. Christ says that they have to worship in spirit and in truth if you want to do it right. It doesn't matter what temple you're at, especially after my work is done. It definitely doesn't matter. So that is the first point that I want you to recall and keep in the back of your mind, that you have to worship in spirit and truth. You have to worship with the entirety of our redeemed humanity, and you have to worship according to all of the scriptures, not just part. Now, second, and this second we're going to dwell on for the rest of our time. Second is, shifts in contemporary culture may never dictate the manner in which God's people worship him. This is very important for reforming worship. Shifts in contemporary culture may never dictate the manner in which God's people worship him. Never. Did for the Samaritans. That was a very sad point. Jesus makes that known to her, explains it, basically. They both knew the history. But Jesus made a point to tell her that you're ignorant in the way that you worship. And she 
knew most definitely why as a result of her own history. She knew that Jews and Samaritans didn't have any dealings together. Samaria was worse for its cultural shift and for hundreds of years rejected God's truth and worshipped a God they didn't even know. God doesn't accept that. Listen to what Deuteronomy 15.21 says. But if there is a defect in it, if it's lame or blind or has any serious defect, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. You, you don't bring God lame sacrifice. Malachi chapter 1 and verse 8. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Or Hosea 4.6, as a result of all this, my people are destroyed from a lack of knowledge. Listen to what he says. Because you have rejected knowledge, I will also reject you from being priest before me. Because you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. We should read John chapter 4 in awe that Christ took the time to witness to a Samaritan. Because this really shows great compassion in him to her. I mean, these people were dogs for good reason, even by Hosea 4, 6, even by that standard. But he shows her great compassion. It, it's tough love because he rebuked her, but he comes to rescue his elect and he wants them to become father seekers. But there's a problem. Because he's got a reprogrammer. He has to fix her before she can worship rightly. The father is seeking worshipers. And culture and bad theology had overwhelmingly distorted her mind. And so by reprogramming her, he is coming to rescue her as his elect to be a father seeker. Culture never, ever, cannot, ever dictate religion. Men have no option but to worship God in spirit and truth. If the 21st century church took hold of that idea alone, all the vanity of will worship or self-imposed worship would be utterly destroyed and forsaken. It would be thrown away. If something changes in culture, that doesn't necessitate that the Christian religion and worship of God should change in any way. Just because culture changes doesn't mean the Christian religion should change. Just because culture changes doesn't mean that worship should change. Keeping up with the Joneses is not a biblical idea, especially applied to theology. Instead, true religion should arrest that culture for moving in the wrong direction. I'm going to take you on a little bit of a, a journey with this idea. And I want you to really think through it because this has profound applications for us in terms of a church plant. And you will see that later. Let me take you on this path I want you to follow. Culture would never have elected Roosevelt if he ran today. Never have done that. Because today, it's not his socio-political agenda that they would be looking at. It would be rather his image. It's not American to vote for a cripple. I'm not going to vote for a guy in a wheelchair. Presidents don't look like cripples. And the modern media doesn't throw away thoughtfulness to an ideal. They don't do that. Rather, they simply displace true and right ideals. They want you to think in a certain way. They don't blatantly come out and tell you they don't want you to think. But, subversively, they're telling you that image is everything. People measure a culture by what it deems or sees as significant. When a culture that thrives on triviality, for an example, as a medium, like television, which is filled with a lot of junk, to be a significant source of information, and people believe it, there's going to be a great problem. 
Ask yourself, when was the last time you've watched TV or heard the radio or even read the morning newspaper and you changed your plans for the day? Or those issues helped you to resolve a critical issue you were working on? Can you think of one? Maybe we could go to the weather, especially for us living in South Florida with hurricanes. Maybe the weather. But other than that, can you think of anything that you ever heard, read, or saw on television that caused you to change your plans for the entire day? I can't think of one. Television, to continue the example, has become the main 21st century medium of philosophical teaching. Indoctrinates people, teaches them things. Are people going to become intelligent as a result of watching television? Intelligence is defined as the ability to grasp, grasp the truth of a thing, right? But if everyone is being immersed, for example, in the philosophical medium of triviality, in trivial things, then the very act of simply considering something is hard because people are being conditioned by culture not to think and simply experience the feelings and emotion of a good story on television. Even news is wrapped up like a story of sorts. Neil Postman, in his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, very insightful, somebody who's not even a Christian, says this. We might even say that America was founded by intellectuals, from which it has taken two centuries in a communications revolution to recover. In other words, though the country had been founded intellectually, we've recovered from that. We're just simply a trivial society at this point. It used to be the case when people could sit and listen to a lecture for five hours. People could do that. But with our 21st century media shift to pictures, the mind can but handle maybe a 45-minute sermon before it almost implodes. The media has shifted culture and has given a brand new meaning to the way we learn. It's affected the way that we think. It's affected how we think. Americans can no longer talk to one another. Instead, they entertain one another. Even the news is packaged as entertainment. You know that the news begins and ends with music. It does. You know when the news begins, you know when the news ends. It's the music in the beginning, the, news, the music at the end. How important is it, really? When something really important comes on, do you hear music? No. When the news comes on and it's important, like a war starting, or something bad's going to happen, this is a special report. And blammo, it comes up. No music. They don't go do 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 Welcome to the 7 o'clock. They don't do that. Right? It's packaged that way. Ultimately, the children of our age will not be able to read a book because it's simply not exciting enough as watching a three-hour movie. Sesame Street, for example, doesn't teach children to love school. It doesn't teach them to love reading. And it doesn't teach them to love education. Rather, it teaches them to love television. So where does Christ stand on that? Cultural shifts or media shifts, the individual mind shifts, and then guess what's affected? Worship. The way society will view worship. The medium that God ordained for the salvation of his elect and their sanctification is the truth of the word preached and partaken in the sacraments. Will worship then be affected? Will Samaria happen all over again? How will media-savvy culture adapt religion to itself. Generally, our technological age doesn't say, don't listen to sermons. It doesn't say that. Don't partake of sacraments. doesn't say that either. You won't ever see that on the news. You won't ever see that on the television. They won't say that. Instead, 21st century professing Christians decide that new inventions that attract unchurched Harry and Sally will be more effective in a culture saturated with the media than simply the truth. They have to make it interesting. So it changes. The worship of the Father becomes profoundly affected because the worshipers the Father is seeking are supposed to be 
worshiping him in spirit and truth, but instead they're searching for an emotional or ecstatic experience because they've forgotten how to think and they've forgotten how to acquire knowledge. They don't know how to do that. They can't do that. Listen, you can make people cry with the national anthem. You can do that. Get the right singer. Get the right camera angle. Get the right night, the right stadium. Right? You can make people cry with the national anthem and get them all emotionally jacked that way. People are looking not for spirit and truth. They're looking for praise and worship. But they're not looking for the God of worship. People are looking for dynamic praise and worship and they're never going to find it if they're looking through the eyes and spectacles of spirit and truth. If they don't look through spirit and truth in that way, that Jesus is teaching in this chapter, well, then praise and worship is going to fit them just fine. In liturgy, in reformed liturgy, people looking for dynamic praise and worship are never going to find it in reformed liturgy. never going to happen. Think about what Christ said. The Father is seeking worshipers who worship in spirit and truth. So how central is that? It's exceedingly central. There's no other kind of worship than that. Worship that adapts to culture is not worship in spirit and truth. It's not the worship Father is seeking. It's not what he's seeking. Luther said this. Now listen to this. This is Luther. 500 years ago. Even so, there is today in the churches a great ringing of the bells, blowing of the trumpets, singing, shouting, and intoning. Yet I fear precious little worship of God. Who would be worshipped in spirit and truth, as he says in John 4.24. They were doing it back then. What is exciting? What makes it happier? What makes it more joyful to the one who's looking for praise and worship? Calvin, in his work, The Necessity of Reforming the Church, said that worship is the central focus of the Christian. It's it. That's what the Father's seeking. John Owen says, But things are indeed quite otherwise. God is a spirit and will be worshipped in spirit and truth, as it says in John 4.24. And no devotion is acceptable unto him, but what proceeds from and is an effect of faith. For without faith, it is impossible to please God. What did Jesus say to the Samaritan? You worship what you don't even know. Because you don't have the scriptures. You don't have special revelation informing you. Worship isn't designed for evangelism. That's not what worship is about. Worship isn't supposed to draw people in in that particular manner. Corporate worship is for father seekers. It's for Christians. Worship dictates a certain response in truth. For some, people, uh, for some reason, people want to respond to God today like they would respond at a rock concert or at a baseball game or at a football game. That's the kind of interaction that they want when they go to church. The praise and worship leader's job is to whip up the troops. That's what his job is. To get them excited. Loud music. The bongos. All of that. Jesus said, in truth, through the word and the sacraments, people are forgetting. They're going in trying to get an individual experience and they're missing the whole idea. Worship is corporate. It's not individual. It's corporate. It's not about the individual's feelings and emotions, but the response as a corporate entity. Worship is not an individual experience, but a corporate response to the word and sacraments. That's what it's supposed to be. So once people start fabricating worship, well, that's forbidden. And oftentimes, evangelical churches reshape worship and repackage it to manipulate the congregation into a what? Quote, worship experience. Worship in a given church always reflects what people think about God. So, walk into any evangelical church and it's what they think about God. Jesus says that it's supposed to be in truth. And yet people are looking for an emotional experience solely on the basis that they think that such a connection, such a connection of feeling, is pleasing to the Father. So, you know, older forms of worship are deemed traditional. And newer forms of worship are deemed contemporary praise and worship. 
But the church does. It's how they, how they label it. That old traditional stuff, we need to get on with it. Because right? culture should affect the way worship is done. What advocates of praise and worship really want is a limited amount of simple and spiritually empty emotionalism. And most of the stuff that they're singing are ditties that evolved from the 19th century, uh, 1970 Jesus movement, where most of the praise songs come from. They want entertainment because they live in an entertaining age. Sing the psalms alone and toss the liturgical dances and the puppet shows and the skits out. They're not going to have that. They want entertainment therapy. They think that they've worshipped God after an hour of praise and worship, and really they have been culturally conditioned to worship their emotions instead of worshipping God. The world of entertainment and media has touched the 21st century Christian mind and offered it a fabricated fantasy, inviting us to compare our world with its excitement. Our world is so much more exciting. Evil is boredom. If you want to talk about what's evil, being bored is evil. And that's remedied with a far greater ease than sin. It's remedied not by Christ, but by a cable hookup in your home. That's how we remedy boredom. And it's remedied by a bouncing ball to follow on Sunday morning on the big screen for praise and worship. That's how we remedy it. Now, reformed worship, though. Worship in spirit and truth functions according to the premise that worship should never be novel and creative, ever. But routine, regular, and repetitious. Remember, Jesus did not say evolving truth, but the truth. Ask any Israelite what was going to happen in Yom Kippur. Ask them a year before that day ever popped up, and they would be able to tell you exactly what was going to happen on that day. Ask them the day after it happened what's going to happen for the next year, and they'll be able to tell you, what are you, nuts? Exactly what happened yesterday. They were not going to be surprised with a new song to sing or a new way to cut up the lamb or the goat. Never. Contemporary evangelicals are trying to be novel and creative so people don't fall into ruts on Sunday. Because, you know, you know, television shows that fall into ruts get canceled. People aren't going to come to something that doesn't entertain them. D David Letterman. David Letterman even deemed that kind of idea as infotainment. Right? Infotainment. It's not really information. It's really entertainment with the mask of information on the front of it. David Letterman said that. Such things simply distract the attention on what matters. And that's the truth. Cultural shifts, according to Jesus, never, ever are allowed to inform biblical worship or religion at any time. Now, with all of that said, with going down that little path, how do we explain to others, practically for us, the character of our church? We're here to meet your needs. I think it's a critical question for a church that's being planted to think about that question. How you are going to talk about this church to others. Now, the church is... Primarily supposed to be about the father seekers who worship him in spirit and truth. That's primary. That's the central. Jesus explains that the evangelical pastor is not supposed to be the CEO. And the pastor is not supposed to be a psychologist in the pulpit. And he's not supposed to engineer good relations and warm feelings. That's not what it's about. Instead, it should be founded on spirit, the entirety of our redeemed humanity, worshiping the father and truth dictated by special revelation and not by culture. You might say, I think of our church in that way. Spirit and truth. That's what I'm for. Spirit and truth. Well, when we reach out to the neighborhood and to the people around in our workplace, how will we form our advertising? Will we be sucked into the deception that culture should dictate how we form our message and appeal to their needs 
or will it be informed by the biblical message of spirit and truth and worship? Are you trying to think about how you will win over a visitor by appealing to what they need or what God wants them to do as a father who's seeking those to worship him? It's obviously a very relevant to the message of any Reformed church anywhere. It's very relevant to the way that they think about how they do things. For Jesus, it was enough to bridge the hostile gap to explain the Father's desire. That's how he bridged the gap with the Samaritan dog. He explained father-seeking, seeking those to worship him, demonstrating the sinner's guilt and offering living water to the shameful. That's what he did. Maybe we could put on our advertising, church seeks wicked, guilty sinners to seek God the Father in worship. Do you think that'll fly? Will that sell? That question, you know, will that sell? is an effect on us by our culture. Did the reformers, when they were reforming worship, say, you think this will sell? You know, we've got to change all this. Do you think that people are going to... They didn't care about that. For marketers, the audience is sovereign. The audience is the one who makes the decision. And ideas find legitimacy and value only within the marketplace. So you've got you to deal with your felt needs. That's where you got to go. That is the inevitable result of marketing the church instead of evangelism, which we'll talk about another time. How should others perceive our church? Americans are individualists, and they are also conformists. Not only does that permeate our society, but it permeates American Christian theology as well. It's, it's more particularly called relativism and pragmatism. It's what they run on. Most people out there think that the pastor in a church is supposed to simply be a good friend to everybody. They think that worship should meet felt needs and be culturally relevant for the on-the-go American. That's what we need to deal with. That's what we are dealing with. People are managed in churches. That's what they are. But instead, they should be looking at us and they should be saying, why are they so different? Why are they not following that evangelical crowd over there? Some will say, well, you know, what will that, you, know, you, know, you know that will do our numbers? I mean, we're not going to have a lot of people if that's the case. Does that matter? Is it the numbers game that we're after? What do you want your church to be? Here we're planting a radically off-centered church from the cultural norm. Radically. What will the response be and what will your response be and your actions be in the way to market our church to your friends and neighbors? Is market a right word? Remember that the presence of the evangelical megachurch has barely caused a theological ripple anywhere in the United States. If you want to see one of the big megastars in the megachurches on television, it's never about the truth. It's always about what they're doing with poor people or meeting people's needs or helping with hurricane relief. It's never about the truth. It's never about father-seeking. Never about father-seeking worshipers. Our church must never turn from dependence on God as those the Father seeks to worship Him to management of God which is characteristic of evangelicalism everywhere. It's the marketability of God that a true church has to deal with against the grain of modern society. It's what we're dealing with as planting this church. You can instantly tell where your mind is at from the last time you spoke with somebody about, the church, about this church. Think about what you said or how you said it. You can instantly tell where your mind is at from the kind of advertising you want to put together about the church. You can instantly tell how saturated by culture you've become, or, or maybe not become, by the way you think about what our church represents. How you think about worshiping the Father. How do you think about worshiping the Father? Is your thinking right? Do we seek happiness as a result of worship? Or do we seek righteousness? Do you see how exceedingly applicatory this is? 
to us in planting this church here amidst all the big churches in the area and all that's going on. Jesus dealt with the Samaritan woman in a certain way because her culture had been informed, her religion rather, had been informed by culture. He had to deal with her guilt. He had to make her sensible of it. He had to demonstrate what salvation was. And he had to talk about worship as central. That was his message. That was his sit-down evangelistic message. How do you want our church to be? Do we really think rightly about worshiping the Father? Church seeks wicked, guilty sinners to worship the Father. We laugh. But is that so off the mark? This is what the Father is seeking. Those that worship Him with the entirety of their redeemed humanity and in the truth. He won't accept anything else. Let's think about that over this next week. Let's pray together. Mighty God, we come before you asking for your forgiveness. And the way that we would think about marketing our church to the world, to fit the world's needs, we ask, oh God, that you would please help our minds to stay on a right track. That here we are, worshiping you, and that as those, Lord, that we are able to share the gospel with, that desire to worship you, you are the one who's doing the seeking. You are the Father, seeking those to worship in spirit and in truth. Lord, we pray you would be gracious to us, that you would help us find those seekers, real seekers, not seeker sensitiveness, but those that should be seeking in a right heart, with a right mind, with the entirety of their redeemed humanity to worship you in truth, by special revelation. Help us to think rightly about how we talk about our church and we think about what's important in our church and what's central to us as Christians. Let us not be duped, Lord, to think that we should go out and simply meet the needs of others. Jesus knows the need. And he was looking for wicked, guilty sinners. The Father is seeking wicked, guilty sinners to worship him. He changes them. He gives them living water. And from them flows out eternal life through the power of the Holy Spirit. We ask, O God, that you'd help us to think rightly. Help us to think soundly. Help us not to give in, O Lord, to that which is wrong, to that which culture would so desire to shift our minds. We pray that you would help us to be renewed by right thinking and hold steadfast to all of the scriptures. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 731, writes, 
God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.